2: Welcome to the second season of Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and this week we're diving into our scintillating autumn lineup with an episode that talks about how an entire American population was chased from their homes in a certain infamous county in the American South.
3: It weren't the Klan did this, it was just ordinary people of the county.
2: And we'll be taking a sneak peek at an audiobook version of a memoir from a certain children's book author that has never gone out of print. Poof! The little thing swelled to the size of a cantaloupe. And when it was first published, was being sold once every 22 seconds. And that was in a real bookstore that you could walk into. But first, let's talk a little bit about the granddaddy of French Impressionism, Claude Monet. Ross King joins us in the studio to talk about how Mr. Monet went from painting small, intimate canvases for most of his life to using acres and acres of canvas for just a single subject, the famous water lilies. Welcome to the studio, Ross. Thank
4: you. Nice to be here.
2: So at 73, Monet was rich and famous, easily one of the most celebrated painters in the world. That's right. But in 1914, there were rumors that he was going to set down his paintbrush. What was going on in his life at the time?
4: Well, he I think he had felt he had done everything he could do. Uh, but much more importantly, his beloved wife, Elise, died in 1911. A couple of years later, early in 1914, his eldest son, Jean, died at the age of 46. Um, and then his eyesight seemed to beginning to fail. He was diagnosed with cataracts as early as 1912. Um, and so he started talking with friends about the way he was going to give up painting. Word of this reached the press, and it was announced that you know the great Claude Monet was going to stop painting. Um, and in fact, he, he more or less did.
2: So what inspired him to pick up the brush again?
4: Well, in some ways, Monet's friends might have been suspicious about him stopping painting because he was a painting machine. I mean, he lived to paint. Um, And I think his friends felt that once he got over this depression he was in, this quite understandable depression, um, he would go back to his easel. But the driving force was someone who was a very powerful driving force, not just in the life of Monet, but in the life of France itself. And that was Georges Clemenceau, um, who had recently been prime minister, but more importantly, was a very good friend of Claude Monet for 30 or 40 years by this point. Um, And Clemenceau came to Giverny one afternoon um, in April of 1911 uh, for lunch, as he frequently did, um, and uh, went and looked at some water lily paintings that Monet had done uh, as much as 10 years earlier and hadn't really done a lot with. He hadn't sold them. He just hung on to them and said, "Uh, Claude, these are rather good. Why don't you do some more of them? Why don't you sit beside your pond and paint? Um, and you could do a project where you decorate a, a dining room for a millionaire or something like that. And so he gave him what was a kind of modest task just to gee him up and get him going again. And uh, Monet, with really within weeks of that, if not days of that, began and really never stopped painting again.
2: So how many years of water lilies did he paint ultimately?
4: He really painted them, and he painted nothing else for the rest of his life. From 1914, um, he died in 1926, and he worked on nothing else in that time, apart from a a couple of self-portraits, two of which he destroyed. He really spent the last dozen years of his life actively working on these enormous canvases. I think one of the surprising things about this little man, and he stood about five foot two, uh, this little man who previously made his reputation with paintings that were two and a half feet high by three feet wide. And now suddenly um, he was slathering buckets of pigment across acres and acres of canvas. And so he began working on a kind of gargantuan scale in these last dozen years of his life.
2: You write in the book that He moved to Giverny in the 1880s, and then he did some serious landscaping and tore out vegetables, apple trees, anything boring, and planted all these exotic flowers. So were the water lilies one of his gardening projects when he got to Giverny?
4: Not immediately. Um, He moved to Giverny in 1883, uh, but it was only in 1889 that he saw water lilies with colored flowers for the first time at the International Paris Exhibition for which the Eiffel Tower was built. Um, And Monet doesn't seem to have been particularly interested in or impressed by the Eiffel Tower, but he was stunned by these cultivars that he saw, water lilies from Europe, crossed with the exotic ones from southern climates, from South America, to produce colored flowers. However, um, it would be about another 10 years before he would begin painting the water lily pond, uh, because he lived there for seven years in his house in Giverny as a, a renter. But in 1890, when he began to make money, he purchased the house and that then gave him license to begin up- uprooting the orchard and things like that, that he wasn't interested in painting um, and planting things that he was interested in painting. He began the Waterlily Pond itself in 1893 and he spent about a decade perfecting and it reached its final form um, at great expense when he diverted one of the rivers that ran through Giverny into his garden to enlarge a pond, uh, which didn't make the locals very happy because of the fact that uh, they saw him stealing their water. And Monet was claiming riparian rights that they thought he shouldn't have. And what's more, they thought he was going to be poisoning the water with these strange plants, the likes of which they'd never seen
2: So were there a phalanx of gardeners to maintain these grounds? How did he keep the water lilies from just becoming like an algae pond?
4: Well, yes, he had a team of six gardeners. And um, his head gardener was very faithful to him and stayed with him for over 20 years. But one of the stranger tasks that his gardeners had was to give a daily dunking to the water lilies because there's anyone who's been to Giverny knows uh, that Monet's water garden is separated by a railway and a road dust was thrown up from the tires of the cars and uh, it settled on the water lilies and of course Monet could not paint his water lilies if there was dust on them and so the gardeners had to sort of paddle out and dunk the water lilies every day. And Monet ultimately solved the problem by paying uh, for the paving of the road outside of his house and so he sort of uh, did a municipal favor to save his water lilies.
2: So maybe they liked him a little more after that. (laughs)
4: Well, possibly, but it always was a bit of a love-hate relationship with the people in Giverny. He didn't really fit in. He was an outsider. He would try to paint their haystacks or grain stacks, and they would say, but we need to take this down now. And he would say, I'm not finished the painting yet, and so you can't take it down. And so the agricultural realities of the farmers who made their living in the landscape were lost on Monet, for whom, in many ways, the landscape was, as you would expect from a painter. Uh, Something to be appreciated aesthetically and not necessarily understood in terms of its economic value to the people who were plowing and chopping and things like that.
2: He did stay uh, glued to his settings for a long time. Can you tell this funny little story that you have in the book about his barber?
4: Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, Monet, I said he was a country boy and he disliked going into Paris and he even disliked leaving his property. He became quite reclusive at the end. And so when his hair needed cutting, he was always so frenetically busy painting beside his pond that the local barber would have to leave his shop and come down the street and go to the side of the pond where Monet was painting. But he was forbidden to touch Monet's beard, this enormous crumb catcher of a beard which had a big tobacco stained center. I mean, he was never without a cigarette. He chain-smoked. And so the, the barber had to accommodate himself to Monsieur Monet and his eccentricities.
2: Were there any other eccentricities? Was he an affable man while painting?
4: No. Uh, Well, if painting was going well, maybe like most painters, he would be in a good mood and he would sing songs as he painted, operatic songs often. But if it didn't go well, he began ripping at his canvases, slashing them with a knife, putting his foot through them. Um, In the 1890s, he went to Norway uh, to paint the snow. And he also thought it would look like Japan. He was a a great fan of Japanese art, and he thought Norway, the mountains in Norway would look like Mount Fuji. Um, and a uh, Norwegian art critic described the unedifying spectacle of the great Claude Monet stomping on his canvases in the snow in a terrible rage.
2: Some people, I guess, uh, paint over their works, but Monet was more of the uh, destructive I guess variety. he didn't need
4: to recycle canvas. He was wealthy <laughs> enough by this time that he could afford to destroy canvas.
2: Something we can all look forward to in our artistic success, I guess. Well,
4: and the nice thing for Monet (laughs) is that he did live long enough to enjoy critical acclaim and also vast wealth that he very much enjoyed spending. He was spending 40,000 francs a year on the garden. To put that in perspective, 1,000 francs a year was the annual wage of the average laborer in Paris. The other thing he spent a lot of money on was cars. And he never learned to drive, but his chauffeur got a speeding ticket Um, What I imagine must have been the first speeding ticket in Giverny in 1904, after which the uh, mayor of Giverny said that you cannot go faster in an automobile than the speed of a horse at a regular trot. And so Mm -hmm. they Monet forced a change in the traffic laws in Giverny because of the fact that he was such a speed demon. (laughs)
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us in the studio, Ross. I know way more about Monet's love of cars than I ever had before. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Now let's move across the Atlantic Ocean back to the United States to a certain county in Georgia. Forsyth County, infamous for a very long time for being one of the only all-white counties in America. And how it got to be so whitewashed is a dark and ugly story that Patrick Phillips dives into in his new book, Blood at the Root. It's a history, but it's also his personal reckoning with a ghost story that Phillips heard for most of his childhood growing up in Forsyth County, Georgia. So Blood at the Root is the story of how in 1912, white Knight Riders in Forsyth, Georgia, violently forced out all of the county's black residents. But unfortunately, it's not the only story of racial cleansing in America from the 20th century, or even the first in Georgia that would have been the forced removal of the Cherokee tribe. So, Patrick, why did you choose to tell this story of what happened in Forsyth in 1912?
3: You know, um there are a couple of answers to that question. you know i was I was raised in Forsyth County, so I grew up there from the time I was seven years old, and which means it's home. Uh, and I've had a lifelong interest in these events and really a kind of lifelong mystery surrounding them um, in that in that the black community of Forsyth was invoked and a kind of legend or myth when I was a kid. and I always had wondered about them and wondered if it would be possible to learn the truth. Um, I suppose the other reason for focusing, for the length of an entire book on this particular racial cleansing, is um, while this happened in a lot of places in the Jim Crow era and in a lot of places in the country throughout the 20th century, um, in Forsyth County, it lasted an incredibly long time. So the persistence of it is probably the thing that sets Forsyth County apart. And that meant that while the original waves of night riding and violence happened in 1912... Forsyth was still a white county when I grew up there in the 70s and 80s, and it was still the case that, like, a UPS driver who stopped for gas or had a flat tire or for any reason, if there was a black driver who found him or herself in Forsyth County, there was a really high chance of some kind of incident taking place, whether it was just intimidation or violence. And there were a number of episodes where this was reinforced over the course of decades, and it's something that was passed down generation to generation. So, you know, I became very interested not only in the events of 1912, but also in how this um, fear and kind of hysteria surrounding race was transmitted, you know, across the generations.
2: So what happened briefly in 1912? What sparked this reign of violent terror?
3: So in in early September of 1912, there were two separate incidents where white women were at least perceived by the white community to have been attacked by black men. The first case was a woman named Ellen Grice. And, you know, she. the newspaper said that she, quote, awoke and found a Negro man in her bed. Uh, And that's really... Um, almost all that can really be known about the story. That led to the, the public whipping on the town square of a local minister named Grant Smith. And it kind of created, it started this hysteria and it started these rumors that there was a black insurrection, that um, the black men of the county were on a kind of rape spree. It happens that about a week later, A white woman, May Crow, was in fact found bludgeoned in the woods of Oscarville, which is a small farming community in the county just a few miles from where I grew up. And her body was found in the woods. She was in a coma for about two weeks and then died at the age of 18 of her wounds. And, you know, it was widely understood in the county, among the white people of the county, that this was just proof that the rumors were true, that the black men of the county were on a kind of um, reign of terror. And so that led to night riding, church burning, shooting into the houses of of black property owners and black sharecroppers, and eventually ended in the expulsion of the entire black community, which was about 1,100 people in 1912.
2: And were any of the, the white people who did this ever punished for what they did?
3: No, there was a lynching. In the midst of all of this, there was also one of the men who was accused of the attack on May Crow, was named Rob Edwards, was a 24-year-old field hand, and he was arrested along with two teenage boys, a boy named Oscar Daniel, who was 18, and his cousin, Ernest Knox, who was 16. Rob Edwards, very soon after his arrest, was taken from the county jail, dragged around the town square. Um, with a noose around his neck, and eventually hoisted up uh, from sort of the, the cross piece, the yard arm of a of a telephone pole. And at that point, hundreds of white citizens had come into town, and they all fired into his corpse. So, you know, it was really, um, it, was a, it wasn't just a lynching by a small lynch party. It ended up really being a lynching that was participated in by hundreds of people. So um, as far as I know, I found absolutely no evidence of any arrests or indictments or any prosecution for any of the crimes against black people in the county. And, and really no names were ever named. Nothing appeared in the local papers. It was always reported as the, the actions of, quote, persons unknown.
2: So what happened to those who were accused besides that one lynching?
3: So Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel and his sister, who was actually married to Rob Edwards. So she was at this point the widow of the man who had been lynched. They were they were common law married, um, so the three of them—Ernest Knox, Oscar Daniel, and his sister Jane—were all three arrested, and they were brought. They were sent to Atlanta for their own safety, along with some other prisoners, and they were eventually brought back to the county for trial. There was a one-day trial, during which the state uh, militia, the Georgia National Guard, patrolled the streets of the county to prevent another lynching, and then after you know two very rushed trials, uh, Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel were convicted and sentenced to hang. It turns out that the judge in the trial was himself later going to lead a lynch mob. The the lynching of Leo Frank made a lot of national headlines in 1915 and actually led to the formation of the Anti-Defamation League. He was a Jewish man accused of a rape and murder in Atlanta. So the judge in the trial later led a lynch mob a number of the jurors were future Ku Klux Klansmen. The sheriff of Forsyth County was a future Ku Klux Klansman. So, you know, when you start bringing in all of this later evidence of what some of the people involved in the trial were capable of doing, it it definitely started to seem like a kangaroo court kind of rush trial that was a show um, before these two teenage boys were sentenced to death. And then they were hung in a very big public hanging just away from the town square where 5,000 people came and it was described as a kind of festival atmosphere. And they sat on the hillsides ringing the gallows and, you know, really celebrated the execution of these two teenage boys.
2: So what happened to the land and property that Forsyth's black residents were forced to abandon?
3: There are really three different outcomes. One is some of them sold, but probably at very depressed prices. There's an example of a man named Alex Hunter who bought his land for $1,500 in the summer of 1912 and then sold it for $500 just a few months later. There were people who left and sold many years later who seemed to have tried to wait it out, and there there are a handful of those in the records. But then there are also a lot of people who seem to have walked away, never sold their land, there's no evidence of any sort of transaction, and yet in looking through the titles, eventually those same land lots appear in a different sale with a different owner. And what seems to have happened in those cases is simply a theft not at gunpoint or not, you know, in a kind of dramatic Hollywood fashion, but a theft that simply involved someone at the county courthouse overlooking a gap in the title and simply approving a sale of land that the seller did not actually own. There may have been a wink and a nod, you know, at some point when, when the transaction was allowed to go through despite the fact that the seller did not really seem to have title.
2: Yeah, sort of like what happened with Jewish businesses in Germany and elsewhere in Europe.
3: I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a fair parallel. It really belies the cliched notion of a kind of dramatic theft of land, which I had always had in in my imagination. And it's much more mundane. And it's a kind of slow and grinding, quietly devastating, bureaucratic seizure of the land one lot at a time, one fence post at a time.
2: Yeah, the way you describe it in the book, much of Forsyth's history in the 20th century seems to be like that mundane, quiet racism that only flares up every once in a while. um, As you trace in those outbursts of violence that you say happen every decade or so that ultimately just end up leaving the town as white as ever.
3: Yeah, you know, Congressman John Lewis, who was who was on the march in 1987, uh, he said to a reporter, there are pockets that the civil rights movement passed by, and Forsyth County is one of those places. And, you know, the astonishing thing is that it lies 40 miles from Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Martin Luther King's home church, 40 miles north of his birthplace on Auburn Avenue. And even at the time in 1912, Atlanta was really the epicenter of black intellectual life. So Forsyth was sort of hiding in plain sight through a lot of the decades after the civil rights movement, because the the night Riders in Forsyth were so successful, there was really nobody in Forsyth to protest. There was no one there, and there were no signs for white and colored drinking fountains in Forsyth, and they didn't have to segregate the bathrooms because it was an entirely white place. They had won. And then in
2: 1987, Forsyth did have its dramatic confrontation. That was the, the March of Brotherhood that you talked about, which was on the 75th anniversary of that initial racial cleansing in 1912. You were there, right?
3: Yeah, that's the that's the part where I kind of entered the story. Um, We had moved to Forsyth County in 1977 when I was in second grade in 1987 to our real when i was a junior in high school to our real astonishment my sister noticed an advertisement in the local paper that said the following saturday there was going to be a civil rights march commemorating the second anniversary of the martin luther king national holiday which was still at the time a fairly controversial holiday believe it or not you know the short version is a, a line of about 75 activists largely African-American activists from the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, but also a handful of Forsyth residents lined up on this highway. And very soon after they started marching, violence broke out. There was a real mob waiting to meet them of kind of what rebel flag waving and uh, rock throwing white people, many of them county residents. There were a lot of arrests that day. And at that same moment when my parents were in this line of marchers and ducking, ducking the rocks and bottles and trying to just make it through, um, i was I was 16 that year and I had driven uh, in my pickup truck to meet my parents that morning and I got there late so you know as as was my way when I was 16 I arrived late to meet my parents and as a result I ended up on the town square where I thought the march was going to arrive and I was waiting for this rendezvous um, for a line of marchers that I didn't know were never going to make it there and so I found myself in a big crowd on the steps of the county courthouse and at a certain point you know I heard a A PA click on and I heard someone scream into a megaphone you know raise your hand if you love white power and all of these people all around me screamed out and raised their hands and started chanting you know white power and so I backed my way out of it having thought I was at a peace rally I suddenly realized I was in the middle of a Klan rally.
2: Wow and did your family make it to the second brotherhood march that followed after this one?
3: Yeah, we were part of that. You know, it felt like everybody in the state of Georgia was part of the second one. After the first march, um, Hosea Williams, who was one of Martin Luther King's right-hand men, and the King Center planned a really massive gathering. Coretta Scott King was there. Julian Bond was there. Andrew Young. A lot of real heroes of the 50s and 60s civil rights marches were part of it. So it became this day of real celebration. Whereas the first march had had about 75 protesters. The second one, the crowd was estimated at 20,000. There were hundreds of buses driving up from Atlanta. There were helicopters flying overhead. There were news cameras everywhere. You know, it was a sort of triumphant day. And And then, of course, everybody went home. And... I found in newspaper coverage from that day, lots of quotes from officials in Forsyth who said, look, when everybody leaves, we'll go back to living like we always have.
2: What really struck me in the book was that afterwards, the response from these officials was eerily similar to 1912. You know, this violent racist mob was mostly outsiders. They weren't from coming. They weren't from Forsyth. They were, you know, hillbillies. Was that true? And, and where do you think that comes from?
3: You know, it wasn't true. It was not true. Seven of the eight people who were arrested and convicted of crimes had Forsyth County addresses. But, you know, I'd heard that my whole life that notion that the troublemakers came from outside. I'd been fed a story my whole life that the original racial cleansing was the work of the Ku Klux Klan. And this was not a story that held up to any kind of scrutiny. When I tried to find a Klan connection to what happened in 1912, I didn't get very far because the Ku Klux Klan had been prosecuted pretty much out of existence in the 1870s after the Klan Act was passed. Those white-sheeted, horse-riding, torch-wielding Klan guys that I had always imagined perpetrating this crime, those were invented by Hollywood by D.W. Griffith's film Birth of a Nation three years after the racial cleansing in 1912. So that left me with the question of, okay, so if the Klan didn't do this, who did do this? And I found a really important letter written by a woman named Ruth May Jordan, who was a 14-year-old at the time. And she recounted her memories of those days when she was 80 years old, 82, I think. And in her letter, there's a sentence where she says, you know, it weren't the Klan did this, it was just ordinary people of the county. And that felt that felt like a, a really important discovery to me from someone who was there, an eyewitness saying that. So the, the denials and the deep desire for residents of Forsyth to distance themselves from this horrific event and, you know, real terrorism is something that I'd heard a lot. A lot of people in the county did the same thing in 1987. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they wanted to believe that. I, I think they wanted desperately to believe that all of this was coming from elsewhere.
2: Yeah. You call the story of of this whitewashing, this racial cleansing, a ghost story. It was something you heard from the regular residents, you know, on, on the back of a bus going to school one day. So what kind of research did you do to to dig up this history and turn it from a ghost story into a, like a work of history?
3: You know, I hope I did that. And it and it was a ghost story. Um, and it that felt like the right term for way, the way it was told to me and the way I'm, you know, I'm sure I repeated it as a schoolboy in that it was murky, it was full of myth and legend, and there were no names or dates or places. The reality behind all of that was something that I found by just being kind of ravenously interested in every last scrap of information I could find. So I read every newspaper article I could find, and, of course, that also required some triangulation and some verification of what was in the papers because this was usually an inherently racist Press And the point of view was often a white supremacist point of view, even in the newspapers. And then there was also a problem in the research in that the written sources are themselves kind of inherently biased towards the white point of view. The people who were forced out of Forsyth included a a small handful of educated, literate, African Americans, but a much, much larger group of illiterate people who never owned a piece of land, never voted, never paid a poll tax, and really many of them never left a single mark on any piece of paper anywhere. And so um, telling their story was a tremendous challenge. And as I worked and as this mountain of evidence from the white point of view grew, I was constantly worried about the dearth of information on the other side. And while I was interested in what had happened in the white community and how this crime took place i was also deeply interested in reconstructing the black community that had existed before it and so for that i did a lot of interviewing and i used you know i used ancestry.com amazingly to track down a lot of the descendants of the black community forced out in 1912 and i tried to find and record their family stories and some of them pulled old photographs down out of the top of a closet and they would put me in touch with other relatives. And I, I just um, tried to tap into that oral history to help supply some of the gaps.
2: So was it surreal to talk to descendants of these black refugees, basically, and then the next talk to you know, the, the white residents of, of Forsyth who'd been there for decades, whose families had been around in 1912 and even before then? Was, was that surreal?
3: Yeah, it was very strange. And, and it was also weird because a lot of the black families I talked to like, they hadn't been to Forsyth. They weren't going to go over there. They weren't going to go to the Forsyth County Courthouse. They didn't have any desire to go to this place that they had been warned about their whole lives and where they had heard these very painful stories about what had happened to their ancestors. And so at times I felt like a real go-between. So yeah, there were a few moments where I it did occur to me that I had an unusual set of qualifications <laughs> to be trying to do this. Um... And that a descendant of some of those black families would have had a a very difficult time getting some of the white people to talk to them Mm. about about some of this.
2: Are there any traces of black Forsyth left in, in current day Forsyth? If you go to Forsyth County today or to Cumming, can you tell that this was once part of the history?
3: Not at all. You know, I looked for that. And when I first, when I grew up there, I thought how strange it is that all of the signs and vestiges of that vanished world are com- that, that you can't find them anywhere, that they're all gone. And then after a decade working on this story, now when I go back, I see them everywhere I look. You can stand on the corner where Rob Edwards w- was lynched, but there's no plaque, there's no sign, there's no mention of it anywhere. You can go to the Forsyth County Historical Society, and you can find lots of stuff about Confederate generals and about the quote-unquote pioneer uh, settlers of Forsyth, and you can find a lot of stuff about the Cherokee but there's almost no trace of the black community. There are no, you know, I have photographs of some of the leaders of the black community in 1912. You won't find any of that there. What's shocking is what you find instead. Uh, The historical society is known as the Hiram Parks Bell Center. And Hiram Parks Bell's statue is also, looks out over the town square. He was a Confederate war hero, a representative at the Confederate Congress who then became a U.S. representative from Georgia. And he was really part of the group of Southern Democrats who in the 1870s helped expel all of the black elected leaders who had taken office during Reconstruction. And he wrote very proudly of how he had helped secure a constitution that ensured white over black domination. So this is who celebrated. And the the judicial circuit in Forsyth County is known as the Bell Judicial Circuit.
2: Hmm. And is Forsyth still all white? Are there any minority residents now?
3: It is not all white, and it has changed radically. Um, Well, maybe that's overstating it. It has changed. The key change is population. I think the population of Forsyth is now over 200,000. When when the violence happened in 87, I think it was in the 35,000 residents, something around there. So it has had a really monumental um, change and growth in the population, exponential growth in the population. And along with that have come a lot of people with no knowledge of the history of the county, and, you know, who aren't part of this long tradition. So as a result, there are young black families moving into the county. I think at present, the demographics are about 10 percent um, Latino, Latina, 8 percent Asian. And I think the black population is approaching three to four wow. percent. So it's, you know, it's a place that now tolerates um, people of color. And there are, you know, there are black families moving to Forsyth for all the same reasons anyone else does. It's a it's a commutable um, destination now it's a bedroom community to Atlanta. It has a you know very deep housing stock and very good public schools. One of the shockers too is um, there's a guy who's now become a friend of mine named Daniel Blackman, who's an African American man. His he and his wife moved to the county I think seven or eight years ago. His kids go to Forsyth County schools, and he's running for the state senate um, as a representative from Forsyth. So you know the notion that he's on the ballot. And is being seriously considered to represent Forsyth in the Georgia State Senate is kind of astonishing. He's the first African-American to be qualified for, you know, on a ballot from Forsyth County.
2: Wow. And it took until 2016. Incredible.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's running against a guy who's uh, Donald Trump's co-chair in the state of Georgia. So it's sort of the national sort of the national the national split writ small on a, on, in, a in a state, you know, an election for the state Senate.
2: Wow. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Patrick.
3: Um. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure being here.
2: And now, something lighthearted to close out the episode. Betty MacDonald is best known for writing the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books that you might have seen stashed around the library as a kid growing up. But Betty MacDonald was also the author of four memoirs, one of which has never gone out of print. We've got an excerpt from a new audiobook edition of The Egg and I, Betty McDonald's first memoir, and here to introduce it is the author of a new biography of the woman herself, Paula Becker. Take it away, Paula.
5: The Egg and I was a really funny look at her years spent trying with her first husband, Bob, to raise chickens on Washington's Olympic Peninsula and her misadventures uh, with her rural neighbors. This book was an instant bestseller, partly because it was funny at a time when Americans were ready to laugh again, and she opened it up by telling readers stories about her family, and her tone was so warm and inviting that readers felt that they knew her, and that's been part of her success around the world. So the clip we're going to hear right now is Heather Henderson on Post Hypnotic Presses. Production of The Egg and I, Betty McDonald's first book. And we're going to hear how Betty tried to solve the problem of having more eggs than she possibly knew what to do with. They were raising chickens and they had eggs by the dozens and dozens and dozens. And at this point, the only people to eat all these eggs were Betty and her husband, Bob. So Betty uses her Mrs. Lincoln's cookbook, Mrs. Lincoln was a popular cookbook that young brides would have been given in the teens and the 1920s, uh, kind of a pre Fannie Farmer or um, Betty Crocker. And so she's going through looking at the already very egg-rich recipes that uh, Mrs. Lincoln offers and trying to decide which of them to use to use up all the eggs that she has. So without further ado, please enjoy The Egg and I.
1: The astonishing fact that there was always on my pantry shelf a water bucket of double-yoked and checked eggs to do with as I would was a source of constant delight and lured me into trying many of the rich, eggy, old-fashioned recipes in Mrs. Lincoln's cookbook. In town, where I would have had to buy my groceries and balance a food budget, I wouldn't have put up with Mrs. Lincoln and her beat-the-whites-of-sixteen-large-eggs-with-a-fork-on-a-platter— and her two wine glasses of old brandy and a cup of slivered blanched almonds for two minutes. Mrs. Lincoln was the type who couldn't cook oatmeal mush without adding a flagon of cherry flip and a soupçon of betel nuts. I would have loved to visit Mrs. Lincoln, but she was hell to cook for, unless you lived on a chicken ranch, and then you and Mrs. Lincoln could see eye to eye about a lot of things, particularly eggs. I had already made sunshine cake, angel food, and pound cake, and was wondering what would be good on a rainy, wet winter day when I chanced on cream puffs. Now there is something, I said, for cream puffs were an old favorite of mine, and they used lots of eggs. The recipe called for eight eggs to be broken one by one and beaten into the mixture with the bare right hand. "'Now, Mrs. Lincoln, let's not be frugal,' I said, and used sixteen eggs. "'This made gallons of dough and almost broke my arm. "'But if Mrs. Lincoln could do it at her age, so could I. "'Put pieces of dough the size of walnuts in the pan, "'leaving plenty of room, as they will puff to the size of large apples. "'I did, but when I took them out of the oven, "'they were still the size of walnuts but as hard as diamonds.' down but not out, I got out my deep fat kettle. When the fat was smoking hot, I dropped in a piece of the dough. Poof! The little thing swelled to the size of a cantaloupe. I was ecstatic. For hours, I dropped little walnuts into the fat and pulled out great golden puffs. Then, sweating but happy, I whipped a large bowl of canned milk— We'll each fix our own, I said proudly to Bob as I put them on the dinner table and hurried back for the canned milk. I cut mine open to put in the filling, but it was already filled, filled with cold grease. They all were, and not only that, but whipped canned milk, in case you didn't know, tastes exactly as burning rubber smells.
2: That's it for Smarty Pants this week. Thanks for joining us for the debut of the second season. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastick, and I hope you'll be back in two weeks to join us for our special edition of How to Publish a Book in Translation 101, our interview with the publishers behind Restless Books. I think it'll be a real treat. Till then, take care and stay sharp.